Auzubillahiminashaitanirajim, bismillahirrahmanirrahim, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Friday the 1st of September 2023, the time is 4.03pm and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Hanif Khan live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. This is your live drive time show. Um, as is the norm, we have two topics for you today. The first topic is about fast fashion, which we shall discuss between now and um, until 5 p.m. And from 5 to 6 p.m., we shall be talking about the ever-escalating conflict in Ukraine. What are the um, consequences? What are the expected consequences of that? How how serious is the nuclear threat there? And that will be the focus of that discussion between 5 to 6 p.m. And on that note, assalamu alaikum, may peace and blessings of Allah be on you, my brother Hanif Khan, all the way from Feltham. Ah, well, no, Feltham, Hounslow, London, you can yeah. say whatever you want to say, but I'm right. a true person from the United Kingdom and <laughs> happy to be here, travel the world. But yeah, no, what, the best place I needed to be here today was to be with you here in the studios, which well, is fantastic. Well, I, I must thank you for that, actually, <laughs> because you are actually filling in for Brother Keen. So thank you very much for making time. I know you had a very, very busy day. So uh, much appreciated. No, no, it, it's, it's my pleasure. And, you know, the two topics that you've chosen, uh, Danielle, are, are brilliant because they really do hit home with so many people at so many levels. Now, if you're worried mm. about the cost of living, what can you do to mm. help in that? And if you're worried about the peace in the world, you see it, mm. that you switch on the news. Most people have decided not to watch the news because there's so much conflict going on yes. around the world. And that's hitting us at home the most is was what our country, the United Kingdom, is helping the Ukraine to defend themselves against uh, Putin. So mm. it's both topics are, are resonate with our residents in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very topical, as you said, mm. very current. Um, and hopefully our listeners will enjoy them. Right. So what is um, fast fashion about? Well, um, I tell you, if, if I was to sum it up in my in my own kind of way, well, I'm not very fashionable. I don't really know much about fashion. I mean, when you see all the pictures you see on on social media, mm. is that fashion? Yeah. For me, I quite like wearing a, a shirt and a tie and a yeah. suit when I go to work. Yeah. But the, my industry that I kind of work in is very much casual, smart casual. But is it fashion? I mean, I, I don't really know how to define fashion because I tend to buy a pair of jeans, very expensive pair of jeans, and I'll probably have them for about two years or a year. Yeah. You know, I do not buy jeans that last me about two uh, about two months, three months, and the colour's not right, been in the wash and they're gone. So there's a lot of ways that you can look at it, what fast fashion is, but actually it doesn't mean how often you change what you wear all the time. Yeah, so, so you're not one of those who'd wear a dress and then throw it away. Well, and, I wouldn't and... wear a dress in the first place. But, <laughs> <laughs> but sure. I don't know exactly okay. what you're referring to. Okay, let me tweak that a little bit. So uh, <laughs> your, your several row suits, uh, so, so those several row suits rather, so... Uh, how often do you do you wear them and how often do you throw them away? So I think I've probably got one of my most original grey suits for I don't know how long. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was young, when I was getting older, put on more weight, whatever it is, I couldn't fit into my clothes. So I had to buy new suits, new jackets, new whatever. So I think that way I would buy more clothes, especially when you're young. Mm. Sometimes people have a growth spurt, don't they? And, yeah. and then they go and buy. But what do they buy? You know, we're talking about the fast fashion. Because the industry, 
the people, the fashion industry basically wants us to buy clothes, don't they? Yes. And then get rid of them, and then buy new clothes, and, and obviously and follow them. follow the trend, follow yeah. that runway that consistently changes every month. So you feel that hey, I bought this t-shirt, right? And is is did I see that other person wear that t-shirt? Right, I'm not wearing this again. Let's get rid of it. But I think we're going to talk about really interesting things about you know how we can reuse our stuff and talk to some of our guests that have got some really yeah. fantastic ideas. But actually, this fashion is evolving, isn't it? And this phenomenon of fast fashion that, that you put it has always taken centre stage and more so, I think, with social media because if you're on Absolutely. screen, yeah. you wear a, an outfit mm. or someone wears a dress. You don't want to be seen again in that. No, they don't, yeah. do they? Mm. So, so this whole thing about this fast fashion and all this, but there's lots of complexities in the background, the supply chains. So, for example, you will probably remember if you bought yourself a jumper many years ago, mm. it would last forever. You could put yeah, it in a washer. The only, thing, the only thing you didn't want to I, 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 I actually have some of those, <laughs> which, were, which were actually bought by my aunt 30 years ago. Right. But now... <laughs> You try to buy one of those jumpers yeah. that you think you've done, a, oh, that's really cost, it's really cheap, etc. Mm. You put it in the wash and suddenly all that wool starts coming out of them, mm. doesn't it? So there's lots of things that you want to balance, don't you? So it, it is an interesting thing and I think we can delve into this a lot more. I've just given you a high level kind oh, of you, why yeah, thing. Absolutely. So right, before we go on to our first guest, let's yeah. maybe quickly talk about the, the impact of, yeah, of fast sure. fashion. I mean, what is it that uh, this fast fashion is actually resulting in and what are the issues that are resulting out of it. So pollution, as we know, is is the biggest one, really. So, yeah. and and that's very easy to imagine that you you know you're just adding to the climate crisis. You're consuming more products, therefore you're consuming uh, more raw materials, and then you are also um, adding to the to the cost of um, uh, disposing of those materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that you talk about pollution, which is ideal. So if you imagine you've got all these clothes that are being manufactured, being washed, cleaned, dyed. All that water, that wastage has to go somewhere, right? So it goes down from the manufacturing plants, it Mm. drops down into the sewage, and then when we have excess rainfall, where does it all end up? Ends up in our rivers, it ends up in in various things that we probably wouldn't want to know where it ends up. But actually, um, this is an issue with pollution, and I think you're you're bang bang on there where you talk about the dyes and the chemicals and the and the way that we manufacture um, our things. it does say in the Quran that, and it emphasizes the importance of protecting the earth and its creatures. Because when we talk about this pollution, Danielle, when you kind of mention it, all the dyes that go into the river, I mean, these are chemicals and these are toxic chemicals. Absolutely. So not only do they affect the wildlife and, mm. and the environment and all the food that we then eat that again goes into exactly the river. Exactly, the food chain, yeah. Yeah, and then our children sometimes want to go for a swim in the rivers, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you want to do that? And I think you and I mm. were doing a show. I was doing a show with someone else. I think it was a Monday with um, Brother Dalib where we spoke about the, the pollution in the water. He had an article where he said there were 10 very fit, healthy people doing a race mm. and they were in the in the river they all got sick oh. right so you can see the problem is and and those won't say that because it says in in our surah al-nam uh, chapter 6 verse 39 it says Allah reminds us that there is not an animal that crawls in the earth nor a bird that flies on its two wings but they are communities like you and and by failing to safeguard the environment we're neglecting our duties as caretakers of the earth 
and its inhabitants. Absolutely. Let's mm. talk a little bit more on this with yeah. our first guest, uh, Shazia Salim, who is an expert in sustainable fashion, having represented the UK on international design products uh, um, and at COP26 as well. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm Alaykum welcome salam. to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Salim, for, for joining us. Uh, right, so let me start by asking you, um, what firstly inspired you um, to start um, uh, Pop London, uh, an eco-friendly clothing store in uh, the city? Well, um, thank you for inviting me on the show. Um, it's a privilege to be here. Um, the main reason was um, I had been in the industry for over 15 years, um, you know, mostly working in luxury and interiors. And um, it was really important to me because I was, um, involved quite hands-on in fashion. Um, I was aware of the, uh, you know, the the the, the customer-facing, um, glamorous uh, perspective, but also what happens behind the scenes and the raw materials involved, and uh, you know, as you just alluded to, a lot of the um, pollution um, and that can occur in the environment as a result. And really, for me, it was important to show that actually you could still um, love fashion, be interested in it uh, and embrace fashion and your personality, but also be mindful of the fact that um, nature and the world is not separate from us. So how do you ensure that the products that you have in your store are actually environmentally friendly? Yes, yeah, so the um, the environmental considerations for my brand start um, before um, anything even gets um, stitched. So um, into the very um, design of the project, the way we source the fabrics, um, you know, we're looking at upcycling, taking uh, remnants, up, you know, looking at um, export surplus fabrics, often uh, natural fabrics. Um, you know, all our uh, knitwear is made with um, organic um, surplus cotton yarns and things like that. So we start from the very building blocks, from design through to how we get the fabrics, how everything is stitched, the waste, um, the, the wonderful people, you know, ensuring that people are paid well. Um, you know, the environment that they're stitched in as well is just important to me. And, um, you know, so... Um, and it's a really because it's a small business. It's very hands-on. So I'm personally involved in uh, in all of all of that process. Wow, sounds fantastic. Must be rushed off your feet. I don't know how you found time to get to <laughs> COP26 because it must have been such an amazing environment for you to be amongst colleagues and friends who are talking the same language. How how was that for you? It was. Tremendous. Mm. I feel really privileged to be one of the very few voices of colour, um, you know, um, representing, um, and I'm not even, uh, you know, representing production from the global south. It became quite an issue at COP26 in Glasgow, where um, there was an awful lot of talking down and a disregard from the global north of the impact that policies have on the global south and in fashion in particular 
there's quite a prejudice uh, or a blind eye turn to the fact that um, even though, you know, from whether it's fast fashion or couture, you know, all fashion brands get manufacturing done in the global south, in particular, you know, um, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, because of the the skill set available in the fabrics and the natural environment, but they don't acknowledge that. And so to to talk um, with authority to explain to people that the you know, the policies that we implement um, here have an impact and we need to consider a just transition to net zero yeah. as much as, um, you know, um, yeah, just for, uh, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, it no, no, yeah no, it makes sense. And then it's glad, I'm really glad that you enjoyed yourself um, because on, especially on this show, we talk about pollution environment quite a lot and the, and our responsibility to the earth um, it, many times but actually this the show that uh, we're talking about today is this fast fashion but you're in the slow fashion market can you explain what that actually means is it I mean fast fashion slow fashion are you in the fast lane or the slow lane uh, I mean it must be yes. you must be up against it right you're thinking about designing something and already it's been designed because of being in the fast lane and by the time you've designed it and and manufactured it people have already worn something similar four times and got rid of it yeah yeah very much it, it can be very much as you described there um the way that I design is more um, classic meets catwalk. So um, I'm designing on much longer trend cycles. Yeah. And uh, the way that fast fashion works is that, you know, they, um, the brands that make that type of fashion have got, um, they're, you know, they're looking to bring new collections onto a shop floor or onto a website within like four to six weeks, every, every month almost. And, um, you know, it's an unsustainable way of working. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not naive to the fact that, you know, we live in a capitalist world and our economy is based on consumption. And, you know, so I understand that. But, you know, it's just the fact that the quality is a lot poorer. The fabrics are, you know, uh, the fabrics are terrible and they don't break down. You know, so when, um, you know, if you've got clothing that's made with, um, you know, plastic based fabrics, which are um, polyester, nylon, acrylic, they all they all have origins in oil and fossil fuels. Yeah. So, you know, they actually then um, when you know, they, they, they don't just, you know, break down back into the soil in a nice way. Whereas if you're using fabrics like linen and cotton and things like that, then, you know, they do, you know, they're less harmful. It's not, mm. nothing is without, entirely without harm. Um, but yes, you know, so the way, the way that I design is to supersede that whole trend cycle. But inevitably, because because fast fashion is working so fast, um, the trends just come back in within quite a short cycle as well. You know, so um, you know it's it's a good it's a good reason why we should hold on to things in our wardrobe for longer. Well, yeah, and you've looked at my it. wardrobe, you'll see that. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke about my grey suit and my blue suit and my navy blue. So it's all there. It keeps coming back out every wedding or every kind of meeting I go to. Interested. Well, without seeming prejudice, I mean, it's easier for men. <laughs> There's a bit sure. more pressure on women. <laughs> right. So, so Shazia, tell us about your value prop- proposition because um, fast fashion is something which, as you were pointing out earlier as well, you know, is is often associated with low prices and mm. quick turnaround. Right. So, uh, how do you make that uh, that distinction? How do you uh, how do you set yourself apart from competition in the eyes of the consumer? Yeah. yeah. 
So um, my brand is more expensive than a fast fashion brand. Um, but at the same time, you know, my value proposition is really that you're getting um, you're getting more um, catwalk inspired, more lux- more premium products, but for less than those prices. So I'm not really comparing myself to fast fashion as such, but it's a, it's a bargain compared to catwalk brands um you know so that makes a distinction the quality is phenomenal so um inside out you know the the stitching is fantastic which you know when you're looking uh you know it it really makes a difference to the way that uh, um you know clothing hangs on the body or um you know how long it lasts in your wardrobe as well and you know ultimately it's um you know it's about um my value proposition is more for, um, you know, successful women, slightly older. Fast fashion tends to target younger women, um, teenagers and, you know, younger women and, uh, you know, men and women. And, uh, you know, but yeah, I am targeting, you know, women who have achieved a level of success and, you know, still want to uh, be inspired and have fun with, with their with their. Um, style. That's really interesting. You talk about the distinction having the older woman. The, are you referring to the more successful woman who's bit more got a bit more disposable income, can afford to buy your products? Uh, yeah. Is that what you're aiming at? Because look, obviously the cost of living is is a barrier to buying certain clothes, right? Yes, yes, it is. It is. But you know, at the same time, um, it's it's perhaps not the way the world should be, but uh, you know we make judgments based on attire. Yeah. You know we make judge, You know, so it is. Um, you know, if we want to be taken seriously at work, where where we are, women making serious decisions. You know, I'm a lecturer as well at university and things like that. You know, so um, some of my customers are MPs in the House of Parliament, and you know these are women who have authority who yeah. want to be seen to look good and play the part and dress the part so you know it's uh it's you know these kind of things are su- seem to be superficial but they do matter are you located anywhere close to Savile Row where our brother Hanif actually does all, all his shopping from or, or <laughs> no okay, I, 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 you don't need to answer that <laughs> you need to answer that right thank you Shazi it was, it was such a pleasure to, to talk to you yeah. thank you so very much for your contribution thank you, thank you for thank joining you. us today all the very best with uh, with this venture that you have and and really wish you um, great success because this is something that we all need I'm very grateful thank you thanks very much uh, peace be with you. So that was Shazia Salim, um, uh, who um, is the, is a store owner, an expert in uh, sustainable fashion, yeah. and has represented uh, represented UK in um, COP twenty six as well, which is uh, quite an achievement, as you were saying. Right. So let's now maybe uh, do a quick reminder of yeah. the poll that we are doing on Instagram, and the question we're asking is: How often do you buy fast fashion? And the responses that we have, once every few months, 47%. Never or rarely is 39%. Once a month is 11%. Once a week is 3%. Yeah. Uh, I, I, what do you think? Uh, it's interesting to know who these people are. Are they young people or elderly yeah, people? Yeah, because correct. if it was me, I would be choosing <laughs> really never. I, could, um, yeah, I mean, here. actually, you know when generally we buy... Well, me personally bought clothes was... 
either at the top of the year, you know, where the、mm. sales were happening, you would buy quite a few. But actually, on our celebration on Eid, for example, you would buy new clothes, and you'll take that opportunity because.、Um, and also, we were always encouraged that if you brought new clothes, you would kind of wear them on Juma. Which would today's Friday, and、um, you would tend to wear nice clothes and and go to Friday sermon or at least clean fresh clothes、um, on that day. So I don't know. What about yourself? Where where would you put yourself, Daniel? Same, absolutely,、yeah. never, rarely or never.、Uh, I I am a, a, you know the least fashionable guy you can you can imagine on the planet. Absolutely, my wardrobe is、uh, is even more limited than what you painted to be yours. <laughs> so、uh, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. Okay.、Uh, let's. Let's go to our next guest, who is、yeah. Anna Breyer, who is a policy lead for Labour Behind the Label, which is an NGO campaigning for garment workers' rights around the world. Amazing! Thank you very much,、um, Anna, for joining us.、Um, can you hear us? Yeah, yeah,、um, I can hear you. Yeah, Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so very much for joining us. Really a pleasure. So, so tell us about about your organisation. Tell us about the mission. What you know? What is it that you're trying to? So, Labour Behind the Label.、Uh, yeah. Why? <laughs> Why?、Uh, well, w- what we're trying to do is link up consumers and activists in the UK with worker struggles that are happening in fashion supply chains, supplying close to the UK high street.、Um, so we're part of this global network of unions and workers' rights groups,、um, people on the ground in factories that are making our clothing、um, in the UK, but also、um, you know in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka,、um, places,、uh, factories where people are really pushing for. Their poverty pay to to increase and to try and hold on to their rights, and so we try and use the information that they give us to raise the,、um, their concerns with fashion brands、uh, who are headquartered in the UK by、uh, having meetings with them and taking their concerns, taking the workers' concerns to their offices and having demos outside their shops and getting their information in the news, so、um, that yeah, we that, that there can be like worker-driven change in how our clothes are made. Interesting. I mean, I really like、um, what you're doing. D- does this kind of fall also into kind of fair trade as well, where kind of ethical side of things, doing the business and making sure that when you're buying your clothes, that they come from an environment where、uh, children haven't been、uh, forced into child labour, etc. Does that kind of fall into it as well? Do you have that as a policy in in, your, in place? Uh, that's a really interesting question.、Um, I believe that all clothes should be made without children being exploited, <laughs> and、um, I think we're kind of on the side of、uh, that there shouldn't be such a thing as a fair trade mark because、um, all clothes should be made in a way that doesn't exploit people or exploit、yeah. the environment. And、yeah. our kind of theory of change is about trying to get the big fashion brands to do the right thing and make、yeah. sure that. The big business that happens of fashion around the world、um, is delivering fair products for people who buy them. Yeah, and also that's one of your biggest challenges because also about fair pay as well, right? Yeah,、uh, yeah. I mean, we've been campaigning for like living wages for garment workers for for years and years and years.、Um, but you know, in most of the countries where our, our clothes are made, actually, also including in the UK, where、mm. there's been like these these.、Um, Uh, exposés that have shown people being paid four pounds an hour、um, in Leicester factories. The clothes are made for really low wages because of the way that the garment industry works, really driving down prices and having this like uber competitive thing between different countries to find the cheapest cost、uh, yeah. and 
to make our clothes. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a, it's a real challenge when we're trying to talk about workers' rights and say this should be fair and, and brands need to make sure that they ring fence um, the amount for yeah. wages in their costing and don't budge on people being paid a good wage. Yeah, it's like a race to the bottom, isn't it? It's like a race, race to the bottom on quality and how much we pay people to produce a garment quickly and at least last four or five washes, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Well, exactly, because we, cause more and more we're making uh, disposable clothing, which is terrible yeah. for the environment on one level, but also is, um, you know, it's just driving this huge volume of what we're making. And actually, if if uh, my my vision of how the, the garment industry should be is that we should make higher quality clothing in a more sustainable, slower way, yeah. and people should buy fewer things, but really good quality things that they can use in creative, nice ways. Yeah. Right. So um, you also advocate uh, for minority, eth minority mm -hmm. ethnic and um, people from other immigration, immigrant backgrounds. Um, they f obviously face um, uh, low wages and, uh, and usually discriminated against as well. Um, how do you um, manage that, especially with the way, uh, you know, uh, how that sort of weighs up with the home office, which... Uh, which probably wouldn't be in favour of that, I would imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole thing about the UK garment industry has has been a real eye opener. I think. Um, well, we've we've got somebody who's uh, working in Leicester as a, um, a community uh, advocate. So she goes to go and meet with lots of um, workers and listens to their stories and tries to um, help them find solutions to any of their the workplace violations that are happening when they're in the factories that they're working in. Um, but, you know, there's so much fear, just a lot of people really scared to talk, um, mostly because any type of labour rights enforcement that happens at the moment with this government is that they combine, you know, um, looking at evaluating whether the minimum wage is being violated with bringing along the immigration authorities. So the d different parts of the government coming together to go and, um, victimise workers uh, rather yeah. than try to support them to have fair jobs and um, and good pay. So, you know, the government's investigating people getting exploited for the minimum wage and then they're using that as a stick to beat them with and, and about their immigration status. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that like all the people who are working in the factories are people who don't have status you know, but some people have family who haven't got their immigration status sorted yet and there's just a lot of fear. People are terrified that if they raise their issues um, that the government's going to take their family away, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's um it, it's th that's why there's been like a lot of hidden exploitation in these factories for for many years. In fact, and um, it's only really in in um yeah in the last two or three years that that wages have started to get better and illegal pay is becoming less common. And um yeah, I mean, but it, it, it still doesn't mean that they're great jobs, but. Things, things are getting better, but there's, there's, there has been a lot of um, hidden fear. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, because I remember you mentioned Leicester. Uh, I remember back in the days it was known as the city for the clothes the world because, and we know yeah. the scandals that took place with the various companies, exactly what you described about the workers that were there were too scared because of immigration status. And obviously... It's a difficult question because if we're trying to compete against the likes of Bangladesh, India and Pakistan and, and China, 
what is the solution then? I mean, if you have high wages, does that necessarily give us better quality products? Because the mentality that people have today, what we're talking about, is this fast fashion. What do we do? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that is that's the whole problem is the fact that we're we're competing on wage uh, worker against worker across different um yeah, different uh, country boundaries where minimum wages around the world in Asian countries are excessively low, also not providing for those people and providing good standards of life for them either. So um, the, the fashion industry is just this leech on, 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 on wage wherever it goes in the world and makes... Uh, and it, uh, anyway, uh, I think that what we need is, though, to reframe what the UK industry is about. And, it, you know, we've got a lot of pride in our in what, what we used to make. You know, Left to Close the World is was a really amazing campaign and a slogan, yeah. yeah. high-quality, great product. And I think we need to bring that back and make things that... Um, yeah, a, a, a high quality with with the type, with brands that people love, like you know Burberry stuff. Or yeah. I, we could be making high end things um, and then and selling it around the world because everybody loves the the British flag. Not yeah, a, no, sorry. no, you're right. Burberry no, is one of yeah, Burberry is one of those brands. But you know, our brand is quite strong on a global yeah. level. Yeah, no, yeah. no, you're right. I mean, just before we let you go, um, what kind of steps can people who are listening to this show and listening to you to talk about, and also like support the mission of Labour behind the label, and then how they can they like kind of contribute like a long term change in the industry because that's yeah. the challenge, isn't it? I mean, fast, 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 now, 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 one, 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 one. How do you solve that problem, you know? Well, how we solve it, I think, is by consumers saying that this matters and that they that they want this to change. I mean, yeah. our main struggle is about the business model, is about saying actually the way that this is being done is not respectful of people and planet. And there are things that we can do to put like protections in place. Um, also, we need a new law from the government. That's another thing that Labour Behind the Labour will be campaigning on in the coming years. That's about, um, you know, that Norway's done it, um, uh, Germany's done it, France has done it. This 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 supply chain law that holds lead supply chain companies to account for human rights and environmental damage as what they do around the world. And if we had that in the UK, then we could also hold companies to account with more than just like... You know, yeah, I mean, you, you, you'd think that would be easier since we left Europe, but uh, the EU, <laughs> but actually it's become even more difficult. We, we seem to be going in the opposite direction where you, where the EU is holding its standards in every aspect yeah. of our society. We're falling behind, you know, recently yeah. with the pollution that um, in our rivers that there's there's no requirement anymore. You know, it's uh, the infrastructure all gone. So, yeah, it's a very difficult situation. Yeah, no, I absolutely hear you. And but rather than despair, I think I decide to fight back. So <laughs> what I, what people can do is they can um, awesome. yeah, yeah believe that this change is also about us pushing back and mm. being citizens and, and civic activists and pressuring companies to be, to do better. Yeah. And um, you can sign up to our mailing list and we'll send you loads of information. Well, we don't send you loads. We'll send you good information which will allow you to take take an action to send an email or to say something on a brand social media about something that matters or there's there's lots of kind of easy things that we send to people where they can help join alongside workers around the world to push back. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very, very much, Anna Briar, for joining us. Really a privilege to talk to you. You've certainly made us wiser. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Peace be with you. So that was Anna Breyer, who is the policy lead for Labour Behind the Label mm. Movement, which is an NGO campaigning for garment workers' rights around the world. What a noble cause. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I'm, you know, we mentioned about Leicester. Leicester was in the news about four yeah. years ago. And there are, obviously, we won't list the, the companies that were involved in it because it is down to that supply chain where they're coming and, and obviously this uh, fearfulness of their immigration status and especially the toxic society mm. we're in now, they played on it. Right, yes. so made things made them work for less than minimum wage. Really difficult, which which, which is very unfortunate, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 you were so right about uh, you know going backwards ever since we've, uh, especially in terms of regulation and and all those things. Especially since we've we've left um, European Union, yeah, the things are becoming more difficult. I mean, this the the supply chain law that she was talking about. Yeah. I don't know when we will actually be able to see something like that on our books, while it's already on German books, as she was saying. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then the supply chain is very. Extremely important with the the cost of our goods. Do, do you remember that um, big ship that got stuck in the SOAS? And yes, yes, and, and, and had to be almost pulled out of it, yes. And suddenly yeah. we didn't get our products that we're waiting Correct. for. And yeah. they, where were they coming from? Uh. <laughs> from like thousands of miles away. Correct. So why can't we build an industry in this country where yeah. we can actually have um, garments built to a quality that we need that suit our weather? Yeah, yeah, mm. 100%. Cool. Okay, let's uh, now go to our third guest for this afternoon, who is Paola Masperi. Uh, Paola is the founder of award-winning responsible fashion label called Mayamiko. Wow. Mm. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very, very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hi there. Nice to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Tell us about Mayamiko. Yeah, so Mayamiko is a responsible fashion label that was um, really started as a charity project in 2008 from um, some work I had been doing in Malawi, which is a beautiful country in southeastern Africa. And I had been working with uh, women in the community and one of the skills and the crafts that they were developing was tailoring and sewing. And, um, you know, it, that was the case for a number of reasons, um, because tailoring and sewing had been really embedded in the cultural fabric of their society. It worked well for women that had also childcare and family duties. They could do it flexibly. Um, you know, there was a number of reasons why this was a, a good thing for women to um, to invest in as a skill. And then we realized that there was an opportunity to tell the story of those clothes and of those women through fashion in a more international way. And that's how Miami got started. Yeah. What type of clothing do you do? Is it only geared towards um, women, or, uh, children, men? Or is it? What, it's, what's... Um, it started off as well. It started off very humbly as accessories. We just okay. wanted to test the concept to see if that would work, if logistically we could make it work, if people would buy, and then we gradually developed a capsule collection for women. Um, which developed into a full collection for women. And then more recently, we've also introduced a kind of gender-neutral range, so shirts and, and shorts and trousers that kind of work for any, any gender. Yeah, uh, so, so, sounds great. Um, so in terms of shipping, we spoke just before we started speaking to you, we were talking about supply chains. Is, how how mm -hmm. are you dealing with the supply chain? So we have a number of challenges on a supply chain yeah. front. So just to give you a, um, some sort of crazy, crazy um, sort of things to think about. So we wanted to try and keep our 
supply chain local. And by local, I mean regional to Africa, because Malawi, over the course of the last century, lost its um, cotton production capability because the industrial capability got lost. So all the cotton that they grow gets exported and therefore they don't really retain the value of their cotton. So we were looking for the next best option and we also wanted, if possible, the cotton to be grown organically in rain-fed. So we found a beautiful project in the north of Uganda um, that grows um, organic rain-fed cotton and has got, again, a, a sort of social impact aspect to it, sort of it, it supports the community. So we, we thought, great, you know, fantastic, we can keep this regional. However, it then transpired that for the cotton to be fully certified, uh, organic, it needed to travel to a number of different countries. So ironically, it goes from Uganda to Germany, to the Czech Republic, back to Malawi, back to the UK. So yeah. it's, a, it's an incredible journey and it's one that needs to be optimised. But it's the restriction we have at the moment if we want to have cotton that is of the quality that we want for our customers, but also with the certification that customers um, are demanding. So this supply chain that you've described is as Mm. a result of Malawi losing uh, or able to retain its own cotton in the country? Yeah, it's a number of complexity. That's definitely one big aspect. And over the time that I've been working in Malawi, so that's now kind of coming up to 20 years, there's been different attempts to retain more of the vertical supply chain within the country. But it's very difficult because prices, you know, it's just a very competitive industry and, and, you know, it's hard to compete with the the prices from China and India. So um, it hasn't been possible to retain or rebuild that capability up until now, and not to say that it won't be possible in future, but it hasn't been possible. The mm-hmm. other aspect is the, the ability to con, you know, um, do the entire processing that is required to um, retain the organic certification within Uganda, mm-hmm. which is where we source our cotton, because that, again, requires a separation of the infrastructure between conventional and organic, a, a, separation of some of the processes and so often because the demand for organic still isn't at pace with the demand for conventional because of the cost of it um you know it's not it's not financially viable for local um, manufacturers to do that and so it ends up going elsewhere where that setup is already existing in order to be able to maintain the certification Thank you very much. So, uh, oh, sorry, give yeah, one question. Just, yeah, just a couple of more questions, actually. So help me understand a little bit, maybe uh, uh, this concept of organic versus inorganic mm-hmm. in, the, yeah. in, in the clothing industry. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we obviously understand that uh, in, the, in the food industry. But sure. um, how, how, uh, why should I buy organic shirt versus an inorganic cotton shirt? I mean, if you think about it in a very simple kind of way, you know, the skin is the biggest organ that we have on our body. And so mm. for whatever reason, we somehow don't make the same connection that we do with organic food that we ingest, that we put in our body, in the same way that we do with our clothing that we put on our skin. Um, the reality is that often with conventional fabrics, there's a lot of, uh, you know, pesticides, there's a lot of chemicals that are involved in the production of the clothes that we wear, right from 
you know, the, the seed and the, the plant all the way through the entire um, manufacturing process. So, you know, the dyes that are used to color the fabric, um, the chemicals that might be used to give certain properties to the fabric, make it more resistant, make it, you know. So, so there's a lot of um, um, potential health considerations around the concept of organic, just in the same way that you have it with food. And I just think it hasn't been as prominent Mm. in people's mind, but it it has changed. And so we are finding that, you know, one of the biggest questions that we get from people is, you know, is the cotton organic certified because of wanting that guarantee that, you know, it's it's good for, for, for health and for the body. And and just to get some idea, what would be the the cost difference? Is that um, is that discernible? Yeah, it's it's significant. Um, but the, the the reality should be that that cost is distributed across all the participants in the supply chain. So you know the farmers get a bit more because they have to invest more because often their yield is a bit lower because they're not using such potent fertilizers. And then everyone else sort of, you know, gets a little bit more. Um, but the reality is that consumers are not often willing to, to to absorb that cost in the finished product. And brands, again, are not willing to sacrifice their margin for the sake of putting out a product that has got a pr- price point that is still considered desirable or affordable by you know, a large number of people. So, um, you know, if we are in an industry that is constantly racing to the bottom and operating on very small margins, it's going to be very hard to, you know, for this to to catch on in a significant way. Your USB is uh, being a zero waste brand. Uh, explain to us, explain the process to us a little bit. So what does zero waste mean in in uh, in today's world, so I buy a shirt uh, from you, and then then what happens? How how does it become zero waste? Sure. I mean, first of all, I, I need to say that zero waste is a bit of a catchphrase because hmm. it's it's very unlikely that there's zero waste in any process. There's generally a little bit of waste in every process, but what it means is that we have tried to maximise the use of fabric and minimise any waste. Yeah. And just to give you an example, this starts from the design process. So when we design a piece of clothing, you know, you typically would design it on on a you know on paper on a pattern, and then you would cut it, and then you would cut that you would lay that paper pattern on top of fabric and cut the fabric to the shape of the paper. Mm. And what we do is we design to make sure that we use absolutely every bit of paper, sure. which uh, sorry every bit of fabric, which means that sometimes you kind of have to compromise a little bit on creativity because mm. doing things that are very convoluted and very sort of um, you know, um, um, creative can create material wastage. So for that reason, our lines are tend to be very simple and the silhouettes very kind of classical. Um, but that means that we can maximize the use of fabric right from the design stage. But also it means we design in a way that things are easier to take apart. So for example, if something, if a dress no longer fits after four or five years and you want to take it apart and make, you know, a top and a skirt out of it, we design it so that it's actually easier Got to it. take those two bits apart so that's a design phase and then the other part is sort of um you know with the little bits of fabric that we do have left we have designed a number of ways to use it starting from small accessories that use fabrics or the smallest bits of fabrics are used to you know create mops uh, doormats you know any kind of item household item 
And also we use them to make um, reusable sanitary pads that we donate to um, local schools or local community projects where girls need access to, to these products. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much for explaining that, uh, Paola. Thank you also for joining us. A fabulous work that you're doing and and really very heartening to see that you know so much good work is being done in in the fashion industry right now to 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 put us on the right path. No, thank you and thank you for facilitating this conversation. Thank you very much. Peace be with you. So that was uh, Paola Masperi, who is the founder of the award-winning Responsible Fashion Labour, Mayamiko. I think that's a, a brilliant organisation that does some great work. I mean, you know, you talked about the sustainable side of things and the organic side of things. Yeah. Um, I want to just mention something else. But before that, another example from the food industry, you probably know it, Tony's Chocolates. You've probably been into a, a petrol station or there's a very expensive chocolate, different colours, red, yeah, blue, green. Yeah, right. If you read there, go to their website, you'll see that it's based on fair trade, yeah, all the way yeah. from free from yeah. slavery, take and the people who where they get their cocoa from the village is all sustained um, the why are all the good things in life expensive well that's it so that, that's an ethical <laughs> challenge we have to do so that was the concept that I learned from speaking to our first guest is that they, they always talk about buy cheap buy twice hmm. right so hmm. if we bought something that was of good quality we would not be buying spending our money again so therefore spend the money and then you can make it. But obviously with this Tony's chocolate, you want to eat it and you'll, you'll finish it so quickly, you won't even last. Just before we speak to our next guest, I wanted yeah. to talk about, there is this one thing which I, I noticed sure. as well. There is this booming fashion rental market. Mm. Maybe we can ask our uh, uh, a guest about that because if you imagine that you were going to go to a house of freighter mm. and buy uh, an outfit that cost you thousands and thousands of pounds, but actually what you can do is rent it for a week, right. right? And then give it back and then you can go to another place. So this is a market that is booming. Again, it's another way of you not spending that money plus the garment being used again and not being thrown away for recycle uh, because it's been in the newspaper, famous person has used it, whatever, you know, one's going to have access to it again. But actually this is something that maybe we could ask our guests about. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, that's, that, that is very interesting. And uh, on that note, yes, the, the next and the last guest for this segment is Liv Simpliciano, yeah. who, um, who is a policy and research manager at Fashion Revolution, where she leads on research and advocacy pushing to hold the fashion, the fashion industry accountable for its human rights and environmental impact. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much, Liv, for, for joining us. So, yeah, let's start by asking uh, about your um, your brand or your work at Fashion Revolution. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so I work for Fashion Revolution. So as a bit of background, Fashion Revolution is the world's largest fashion activism movement campaigning for a clean, safe, fair, transparent, and accountable fashion industry. So we have a vision of a global fashion industry that conserves and restores the environment and values people over growth and profits. 
Um, I can give you more information, but just take a moment for pause if there's kind of further questions after this. Oh, yeah, we've got loads of questions. We'll keep yeah. you busy for, for ages. But but actually, um, what I wanted to do was the this role, the, this policy that you're playing in transforming the fashion industry, obviously it's for the better and we welcome that and that's what our guests have been saying. But could you share some examples of something mm-hmm. where you've managed to be able to change the way people think see feel and wear clothes i did mention just before you came on this whole thing about people now renting um fashionable Mm -hmm. items is that kind of something that you would push as well Mm -hmm. so there's so many things i want to say so Mm -hmm. i will get to the rental thing in a moment but i think it's firstly important to kind of set the scene of what is the big fashion industry so Um, The fashion industry is a trillion dollar industry. It is one of the wealthiest industries on this planet. And in fact, fashion CEOs are some of the wealthiest people in the world. And when you think about the inequality between fashion CEOs and the people who make our clothes, just to put this into perspective for our listeners, it takes just 28 minutes for a fashion CEO to earn what a garment worker would earn an entire year. So there's this immense immense inequality in the global population. 2% of the population uh, controls the majority of the wealth. So when we think about policy change and the people who make our clothes, um, Fashion Revolution just led um, a first-of-its-kind campaign called Good Clothes, Fair Pay. And we were campaigning for mandatory living wages due diligence. So again, um, to put in... uh, to emphasize the importance of living wages. At Fashion Revolution, we do research on 250 of the world's largest fashion brands and retailers. So yeah. these are really the biggest brands in the world. Many brands um, that the listeners will have will know, like H&M, Zara, um, Primark, and so forth. And our research found the 99% of the brands we review do not publish the percentage of workers in their supply chain earning a living wage which is why we're calling for policy change. Um, So we launched a European citizen initiative last July to fight for living wages. So we needed 1 million signatures um, to get our petition into European Parliament, which led to a lot of amazing policy changes. So um, when it comes to the fashion space, there's so many different legislations currently being proposed um, and incoming, um, particularly something called the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, I won't go into the kind of meat of that because I know it's really complex, but just to say last July when our campaign launched, the legislation didn't mention living wages. And after a year of our campaigning, we had support, cross-party support from different EU policymakers. We got the words living wages added to the legislation. We had hundreds of thousands of signatures from EU citizens, and we actually had support from 38 different trade unions across Africa. So just to say we have global support for this really instrumental um, campaign and we're continuing this campaign hopefully in the future um, in our fight for living wages for garment workers. Liv, you uh, mentioned some of the brands like, you know, uh, Primark and H&M and others. What about the big ones? What about, um, you know, the likes of Louis Vuitton's, uh, the likes of um, uh, Gucci's, Mm -hmm. the likes of uh, Yves Saint Laurent? What about them? Do they uh, publish um, their details? Sure. So we talk about fashion as a system. So, of course, um, there's different types of brands. There are luxury brands, there are high street brands, and so on. 
Um, but we do look at, at these issues systemically. So when it comes to luxury brands publishing information, of course, um, they publish information. I mean, I think the best metric to look at is our Global Fashion Transparency Index. So um, I think one of our key findings this year um, is that a lot of luxury brands have improved their transparency. Um, for example, Gucci was the um, highest ranking brand in our index. They scored something like 80 something percent. I can't remember off the top of my head. But my point being is that luxury is really making strides in terms of transparency. And I think they are responding to this call for greater regulation in the fashion industry. And I think when it comes to luxury itself, um, I think transparency is becoming part of how we define, you know, what is meaningful when it comes to fashion and so forth. Fantastic. This this policy that you implemented and got the EU to kind of implement and, and get this uh, this wage increase, did that impact on business? Did it? Did it make so, fashion industries suffer a bit more or was it did it increase their profit? So um, I think just to be clear, I know the things I'm talking about are quite complex, yeah. um, especially for a new audience. So I just want to be clear that this legislation I mentioned, yeah. it's still incoming. It's still negotiation. Right. So the exact details of this legislation called the CSDDD, the Corporate Sustainability Due yes. Diligence Directive, is still under debate. So no changes have happened as of yet. But my point being is that if, whilst it's still negotiation, we have actually got the term living wages on the agenda. Yeah. So the outcome of this is, you know, still remains to be seen. But to give a kind of view of um, why this is so important is, um, I mean, garment workers are historically underpaid, historically undervalued, continue to be underpaid and undervalued. Um, millions of people who make our clothes are some of the poorest people in the world. And the outcome of the pandemic... Sure. Um, has meant that wages have, you know, gone even further down um, yep. because of the economic downturn. You know, people are shopping less, they're going to stores less. And this has meant that um, as a result, um, workers are earning less money. And this is because they don't have overtime. But I think the problem is in the fashion industry is to earn money, workers shouldn't be reliant on overtime. And in fact, research shows they earn, you know, 45% often less than a living wage, which means they can't afford to send their children to school. They can't afford to put healthy food on the table. So this industry has a serious problem in sure. terms of paying garment workers a living wage. Yeah, so you could come up with a, with a T-shirt that says, who made my fabric? Couldn't you? That could help with your policy, right? Absolutely. Well... Uh, I wouldn't advocate for making more T-shirts and more clothes to get our message across, but I completely understand. Good point taken, and I'll retract that comment. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, and on that note, Liv, thank you very, very much for joining us. Really, um, very yeah. interesting to talk to you. Thank you for for all the great and wonderful work that you're doing, and all the best thank with uh, with this legislation and all the effort that you're doing in that direction. Peace thank be you with so you. Much. Thanks very much. Uh, have a lovely weekend. Yeah. So that was Liv, uh, Liv Simpliciano, who is the Policy and Research Manager at Fashion Revolution. Right, we are coming up to the end of the program. And before we end, um, uh, brother, uh, what? Um, how would you, you sum up in terms of, you know, consumer choices, ethical alternatives? Yeah. What can we say um, to our audience uh, in terms of the message that we want to give out? I, I think the important thing is, is when people realise what happens in the food chain, who makes 
my fabric, etc. They do have the power and the influence uh, to tell uh, the fashion designers, hey, look, I'm now not going to buy your product because of I've suddenly got a conscience and I do not want to buy so many and I can't afford to buy all these clothes. So they, they have the power. And I raised this issue earlier about the booming fashion rental market. The fashion market is very upset because what they want to do is buy get us to buy their products and and, and get rid of them and consume yeah. them, move on. Yeah. So I think the the key thing is is that you know we have the power and also Islam in itself encourages this conscious decision making and, and is responsible like stewardship. So I mean our holy prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that the world is a beautiful and verdant and verily Allah has made you his stewards in it. And that mm-hmm. kinda it's it's so many ways to look at it. Um, in terms of our conscious consumerism and how it aligns itself and also the effects it has on the, we spoke about the environment as well with the pollution. So both these two things link really well. And I think also we should support ethical brands and fair trade. I think that's one of the 100%. And there's one um, more tradition of the Holy Prophet, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that that I'd like to quote. And that is, there is none among the Muslims who plants a tree or sows a seed and then a bird or a person there or an animal eats from it, but it's considered as a charitable gift from him. Yeah. This is from the book of Hadith, uh, Sahih Bukhari. And and that really goes to show the, the, the not only the importance of this, but, you know, how how big this concept of charity in Islam is. And even, you know, making a con- conscious choice here um, in terms of our, our daily routines, our daily choices, including our fashion consumption, can make um, in, in terms of um, uh, rightful living or uh, the living as prescribed by Islam as well. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, uh, this was our segment on fast fashion. Um, I, we th- thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking about it. And as uh, I was talking uh, to my fellow presenter here, uh, Hanif, uh, brother Hanif, this was, um, uh, we could have done two hours uh, on, on that as well. Uh, we are coming up uh, to the end of the show now. Please do stay tuned. We will be talking about uh, a very different topic, yes. which is the threat of nuclear war or, or the escalating conflict in Ukraine in the next hour, right after the news break. So please do stay tuned. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to this, uh, please go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. We will be back after the news break. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا listening to the Voice of Islam Radio.
السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ میں پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز آف اللہ بی اپون یو ویلکم بیک ٹو دس لائیو ڈرائی ٹائم شو فرام دی ساؤتھ لنڈن اسٹوڈیوز آف وائس آف اسلام یو لسننگ ٹو دانی الضیاء اینڈ مائی فرینڈ حنیف خان فرام دا اسٹوڈیوز اینڈ ان دی سیکنڈ آور وی آر اباؤٹ ٹو ٹاک اباؤٹ اے ویری ڈفرینٹ ٹاپک وچ از دی ایسکلیٹنگ کانفلکٹ دی ایور ایسکلیٹنگ کانفلکٹ and the risks that that poses including the risk of nuclear warfare um given that uh, you know the uh, some threats have actually come in from uh, uh, from senior russian well the very senior the senior most i should say russian leadership so let's talk about that so former russian president dmitry medvedev recently stated that moscow would have to use a nuclear weapon if gives ongoing counteroffensive was a success. Yeah. Medvedev he is the deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, a body chaired by President Vladimir Putin, none else. And he said in a message on his official social media accounts that Russia would be forced to fall back on its on its own nuclear doctrine in such a scenario. Imagine if the offensive which is backed by NATO was a success and they tore off a part of our land then we would be forced to use a nuclear weapon according to the rules of a decree from the president of Russia he said there would simply be no option he added so our enemies should pray for our warriors success they are making sure that a global nuclear fire is not ignited he added and medvedev appeared to be referring to part of russia's nuclear doctrine which sets out that nuclear weapons can indeed be used in response to aggression against russia carried out using conventional weapons which threatens the existence of the russian state the uh, the president of russia president putin himself has previously also made these threats brother hanif Yeah, I mean, it, it is really worrying. I mean, when you look at both these two countries, Russia and Ukraine, um, they both got their own objectives, right? You, you've got Ukraine that uh, wants its land back, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that Russia has taken, and that's their objective. You've got Russia that wants to expand and, and go back to how things were as USSR used to be, and it wants its um, land back. So you've got this situation where you've, clearly explain uh, brilliantly in quoting um the president the former president uh, dmitrov medvedev is that if the land that they've already acquired that then ukraine will go back and claim and they go then and fight and, and do what they need to do russia considers that as their land now right yeah. so as you said in their constitution it says they can defend and how are they going to defend they could potentially defend with using nuclear weapons now the question that we have in our head do we consider putin as a bully or do we consider him as someone who bluffs now history will tell us through what he's been up to for a very long time he's pretty much considered as a bully hmm. so that then puts people really you know worries people so yeah does that mean really in, in the question that you're asking in 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 your question for this hour you know mm. nuclear warfare are we closer than we think yeah. in my opinion i think yes we probably are because he's ready he 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 needs a solution, this, I mean, right? and and we've you know we all know how unpredictable he can be as well 
So you know, even if we were to sort of plot all options uh, on paper, we know his background. We know that he always bluffs as well. I'm just saying, for argument's sake, this is isn't this something too serious, not to be ignored? Yeah, I mean, w- one of the things that um, when we were going to discuss this um, topic, y- you can. Um, look at the YouTube videos everywhere, do some research, but there are some reputable kind of um, journalists out there that kind of talk about, is Russia really bruffling? So about a year or two years ago, Hmm. Putin reorganized his kind of top-tier military command, and he put in power at the top his most trusted commanders to look after the internal, the external, the army, that probably if he said, right, I want this done, will be inclined easily to say, yes, sir. So that kind of worries people. Mm. He may not be bluffing. The other point that I think is very important to make here also, Brother Hanif, is that we've got to understand that Russia's conventional capability is not as strong as the Western Alliance. Yes. And and the Western Alliance is uh, has now upped the ante by providing tanks. They've recently announced that they'll be providing fighter jets as well. They are providing all other sorts of con- conventional warfare yeah. that you can imagine, uh, all the latest. And, and we've seen uh, how devastating some of these drone attacks actually can be. Um, R- Ukraine is now able to hit well inside yeah. Russian territory. Yeah. So um, you are almost pushing the bully, even if you want to call yeah. Putin, uh, his back to the wall. So the other interesting point on that as well, and I'm no expert, but it's just uh, kind of how I kind of feel it slightly, is that the nuclear deterrent that we've had in the world has kind of kept the peace. Yes. So is that the way we should... Stay? Is is there another solution to that? I don't know what other solution so, there is besides people going back to faith in a way. Absolutely. You're 100% right. But, you know, it's very interesting also that um, you talk about the, the, the nuclear equation that, you know, the, uh, the threat of the other side uh, or the possibility of the other side using nuclear weapons and that kept peace for such a long time, mm. especially during Cold War. But you've got to also understand, perhaps keep in mind that nobody actually actively made those threats, not even at the very delicate times like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Russia wasn't saying that we're going to use nuclear weapons. Yes, there were nuclear weapons being transported, but nobody was actually actively in their right mind saying that nuclear weapons are going to be used, especially at you know at that senior level. Yeah, yeah. And also I think people, especially my children's generation, not so much the elder generation, they can actually visually kind of see and experience and understand what a nuclear weapon can do and how devastating it is. We still see today, after generations after generations, that in Nagasaki and and Horishima, children are still being born with disabilities and deformation based on what happened all those decades ago. And, the, and they were the biggest and the, the most powerful bombers, were it? Now what we have today, and I think if we can draw people's attention back to what the effects would be of a nuclear war and the and the effects, long-term effects, 
we may be able to find a way for peace. Putin may think about, hang about, you know, I've got my population. Because obviously we know radiation travels, right? He, he puts a, a nuclear uh, bomb in Ukraine. It's going to come back over. The radiation is going to affect Russia. It, right? it, it, it's going to affect everybody. Yes. It's going to affect us here in Europe. It's going to affect everybody um, uh, around the world because yeah. we are, you know, that that's how, I mean, look, just look at climate change, uh, you know, uh, the, the ozone hole in, in just one part of uh, of the Earth's yes. atmosphere has affected the whole the, the whole world. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. The repercussions of such um, such a disaster uh, are unimaginable. And you're absolutely right. Generations after generations will have to bear the consequences of um, <laughs> uh, of such a dramatic, yeah. or such, such a drastic action. I mean, I'm not aware of anything, but you get these uh, people who are conspiracy theorists believe that there are people out there that built bunkers way under the ground, the cities that we're not even aware of. But basically, if... if someone accidentally or intentionally sets off one of these nuclear weapons, they'll just go underground for 30 years and, and then they'll make come up afterwards. We don't know what's going on. We do not know what's game being played. But what we do know is that if you want to win and change the mind and hearts of people from an environment where it's toxic, you've got to show love, tolerance and belief in God. Right? Because that consciousness that you have will change people's hearts and minds. And I think this is what our spiritual leader for many years now, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, who is the current head of the Worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, has been telling the world leaders that come back to peace, come back to your belief in God Almighty or a spiritual being, the omnipresence of God Almighty, that will somehow make people change their mind and, and not have this threat of a nuclear weapon um, being brought to the forefront. And it's so important that we carry on with, with this kind of mentality because I, I, it worries me, it worries me for about my children, it worries me for the future generations, although none of this will even matter. Like people talk about if a nuclear weapon goes off and then there's a retaliation, don't worry about climate change because climate change is happening. But it's not going to happen to that far, that, to that extent, the speed at which the consequences of a nuclear weapon going off would be. So it's really important that we understand where people stand and how close we are to this threat of a nuclear weapon. So anyway, what, what I would ask people to, to consider is go back and understand a little bit more as to what happened when the bombs went off, the nuclear bombs went off, Back that ended the Second World War, and it, and it happened twice in Japan, and how Japan in itself is so uh, neutralized in a way that they are so scared of any violence or anything, and they kind of disappeared for many many decades and came back. But everything that they've done, they rebuilt themselves, they changed the way they think, the way they behave, and. Every aspect of their life is all about having a peaceful society. And they've been very instrumental in trying to set a, a, an example. They haven't come out fighting. They've come out in a way where they show lots of restraint, lots of peace, lots of love. And look how well they have excelled in, in the material world as much as anything else 
around the world. So they benefited from taking that approach. And I will then call on all the other world leaders to start looking at how we can create further peace. Although, yes, and, and I agree and, and, I, and I understand it, we're, going, we're now living in a world where the threat to the Third World War or any sort of proxy wars is increasing. More and more of our nations around the world are investing more in their armies and their capabilities to defend themselves. Every country's main purpose, irrespective who's in power, has to defend its borders. That is one of the first constitutional rights to defend one's country. And all the policies that are there, put into place, are there to defend the country. So how then, you know, what's the steps? You have to find a solution for it. So you're going to find more countries will be investing a lot more in their um, in their army, in their capabilities for war. Absolutely. No, thank you very, very much uh, for that. Right. So let's um, uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, yeah. we will uh, continue to talk about this very important topic. If you want to contribute toward this show, if you want to talk about, if you want to, to say anything, if you agree or disagree with us, please feel free to call us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. This is a live show and we would like to hear your views. So please do stay tuned. We'll be back right after this short break. A new station, The Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with The Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show. Peace and blessings uh, be on all of you. Yeah. Today is Friday, the 1st of September. And it's a drive time show as well. Yeah? It is the drive time mm. show. How can I forget that? <laughs> Absolutely. It is the, the drive time show and it is the weekend uh, yes. coming up. So perhaps that's the reason I've forgotten about it. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, we are talking about um, uh, a very serious issue, however. Yes. We're talking about Ukraine and we're talking about the ever-escalating conflict in Ukraine. We're talking about um, uh, the the threat of nuclear weapons in that war. Let's now go straight to our first guest for this segment, who is Gabriela Rosa Hernandez, who is an expert at the Arms Control Association in the US. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. Excellent, Gabriela. Thank you very much for joining us. And, and apologies for the for the trouble we were having earlier um, connecting with you. Right. Um, let me start by asking you, so in your estimation, how dangerous is the situation in Ukraine vis-a-vis the conflict, uh, the escalations in the conflict vis-a-vis Ukraine and Russia? I think, well, if we're speaking between Ukraine and Russia, it's very much a hot war at the moment, and no side seems to be intent on any sort of negotiation or any step towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, yes, there is, horizontal escalation we've seen russia bomb uh ukrainian green infrastructure we've seen the ukrainian retali- retaliate with single strikes particularly inside of russia uh through the use of uavs aka drones so we are in a period actually where we should expect a lot more single strikes from the Ukrainians in order to remind the Russians that really nothing is safe and that they can also strike them as well. And the Russians seem very, very intent on keeping up uh, launching caliber cruise missiles uh, in the Black Sea. 
So, yes, it is a period of escalation between both countries. Really interesting. You talk about when you talk about the escalation. There was this um, lots of training going on by the Ukraine's uh, pilots uh, trying to learn how to fly there. I think it was the F sixteen, but mm. through a training program, they had quite a, a severe accident where they lost three of their pilots. Now that would obviously hamper um, the effects of Ukraine. But I, I wanted to ask you that: Should the West then? Um, take this kind of repeated nuclear threat from Russia, uh, especially in view of Russia's insecurity about its own conventional capabilities, because it does seem that it's fighting a war with Second World War, Second World War tactics. Well, I would say that first of all, uh, Russia's rhetoric has been very clear that it very much uh, sees sees its war on Ukraine as a conflict with the West, first of all. And I would say, second of all, a tactic that Russia has resorted is making nuclear threats, particularly towards NATO member states, in order so that they don't have boots on the ground on the conflict. They've been very vocal about this. And, of course, they also use uh, the nuclear threats in order to kind of affect, try to affect the amount of support in terms of weapons deliveries to Ukraine. Yep. However, I think I think US policy in terms is very clear about this. Uh, US policy has been based on giving Ukraine that the weapons that are relevant for the current fight. It does seek to avoid the possible geographical expansion of the conflict and the military assistance is tied to the current needs of the fight. Yeah. So the United States is also not giving Ukraine every single thing it wants. And you can see very much a lot of reporting on how the Ukrainians are frustrated about this. Yeah. So I would I would definitely say that uh, something that has been very useful during this period between Russia and the West is the ha- sometimes that when the Ukrainians strike inside of Russia, that uh, the West, particularly the United States, makes some sort of declarations as in Western weapons have not been used in order to strike Russia. I think that's a very useful thing to do in this time, and it should be continued to be done. And, you know, it should also yeah. reinforce that it can tolerate Ukrainian attacks of Russian targets just as long as NATO-supplied weapons and equipment are not used. Gabriella, would you agree that the mood at the moment on both sides is very jingoistic and belligerent? I would say I would say both sides, and it depends what both sides are you talking about. You're the talking the about West and, and Russia. Of oh, the West and Russia, um, I would say that yeah, that yes, there is a moment in which you do need more risk reduction mechanisms. However, how useful are risk reduction mechanisms if the Russians are not picking up the phone? Hmm. Um, so, and I think this is very much a challenge, actually, to the actual war itself, in which you have you have an adversary who is clearly in which ambiguity at the moment it finds it military militarily useful to camouflage. But on the other side, so, I mean, the Russians would counter that by saying that we're not picking up the phone because the West refuses to listen to us. We, 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 we told them not to give Ukraine tanks. They did. We've told them not to, uh, to mess with the Air Force business. Now they're giving them airplanes and, and training. So why should we pick up the phone? 
Um, so I would actually say that um, Russia's particular fear when it comes to F-16s, according to the conversations I've had, it is obviously that, you know, that the West, you know, they send contractors to Ukraine in order to help with the maintenance of F-16s. And this is very much a credible fear. However, the West has made clear that it is actually training the Ukrainians in order to actually do this. And I would say to the remark of, you know, Russia does say, look, why should we answer when when you continue to arm Ukraine? Well, I would say simply because the United States and Russia have the most amount of nuclear weapons in the world. They possess 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. And there's a certain responsibility that comes with that, regardless of regardless of currently the state of U.S.-Russia relations, which is completely it, the magic of this relationship, I always say, is that it can always get worse. Hmm. Do, yeah, absolutely and 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 unfortunately you know that that's that's the the cycle the ever escalating cycle that uh, that we're seeing at the moment so um, a logical question then would be um, all all solutions eventually have to have a political solution both sides will at at some stage need to sit on a table across the table and find a solution or other powers will need to facilitate that to happen. Are we actually even preparing the grounds for something like that? Uh, so the answer from the United States would clearly be that, you know, they are also preparing Ukraine to be in the best negotiating position uh, in terms of and more relying of what goes on in the battlefield. Um, but no, I don't think we're anywhere close to, I don't think we're anywhere close to a settlement, a political settlement or anything of the sort. The Ukrainians, and if you read uh, polls, uh, the polling, the Ukrainians are very intent on keeping this going. And I think what has made this all the worse is actually uh, the war crimes and the behavior of the Russian military, which unfortunately yeah. is rewarded uh, by uh, the Russia's Ministry of Defense. This makes this a lot more complicated and a lot more emotional. Yeah, I think that aspect of the war crimes um, by Russian soldiers, etc., and we don't know what happened on the other side, but this will always be a fly in the ointment to to any negotiations. Mm And where you have... Russia wanting to expand and you've got Ukraine wanting to have his land back. Both of these are polarized um, objectives where it's kind of hard to get them uh, around the negotiating table. I mean, as a last question, I mean, how seriously do you think the the view that Russia's nuclear threats are true or is he just being, um, being a bully bluff, or is he bluffing bluff, it? Yeah. So I, so I don't, you know, I do definitely think that Russia's nuclear threats actually should be taken seriously. But I do think that the United States, given the fact that they are also very ambiguous at times, the United States and its allies, they do have kind of a leeway as to how the how this is interpreted and Russia's actual red lines. And I think the very much the issue, I think I think the West very well captures that obviously strikes with uh, Western-provided weapons on Russian territory are unacceptable, and they are clearly uh, President Putin's red line. Mm -hmm. I think they capture very well that putting troops on the ground and 
is also a president President Putin's red line. I think they actually they actually do understand this, and this is why it is. I would say that U.S. military assistance towards Ukraine, it's actually a very complex system of assurances and declarations, and sometimes even declassifying information in order to actually so the Russians don't freak out. And I think this is a very useful strategy. Hmm. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Gabrielle, for joining us all the way across uh, the Atlantic. Um, have a lovely rest of the day and have a lovely weekend. It was lovely speaking with you, and uh, hopefully we will have you back uh, to talk more about this, um, uh, this all-important and ever-escalating issue as well. Thanks once again. Uh, peace be with you. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So that was Gabriela Rosa Hernandez at the Arms Control Association in the U.S. Let me now go straight to our second guest for this segment, who is Dr. Afzal Ashraf, who is an expert on global security, conflict, terrorism and counterterrorism. He also teaches uh, international relations, politics and history at the University of Loughborough. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A warm welcome to The Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum salam. Dr. Ashraf, let me start by asking you, um, do you think the West is is helping the situation by arming and rearming and more arming um, Ukraine? Uh, or do you think this is now time f- for both sides to, to have, a, have a bit of a reflection and think where we're headed and maybe do something different? Well, I think the time for reflection um, has always been there. I think reflection should have taken place before this um, conflict started. Um, and it appears that uh, it hasn't. And <clears throat> it appears that the conflict has been in, uh, it's been in gestation for a long time. The, the mention of Putin does, uh, does uh, make a lot of people cough, so that's fine. <laughs> we understand. <laughs> right, so... Well, yeah. well, uh, I, I think that um, it is an emotional reaction. Um, <laughs> sure. the, the problem here is exactly that there is a, a very um, confusing um, and inconsistent mixture of what we call realist thinking, mm. power politics on both sides, uh, and um, emotional reactions uh, for public consumption. So this whole a business started um, many years ago with NATO's continuous expansion eastwards um, towards the Russians. And the Russians initially, uh, after the Cold War, uh, <clears throat> uh, wanted to join NATO, of all things. They wanted a peaceful existence, but they weren't um, allowed um, to do so not um, as an equal. Uh, they were allowed to do so as a subordinate partner, just like the Europeans, but not as an equal to the Americans. And, and so this is uh, about, if you like, um, national ego. It mm. is about power politics. Uh, and the, the conflict is being sold to the public uh, in fairly understandable emotional terms. So what we have here is a situation uh, a year and a bit ago where um, uh, 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 the Russian forces um, invaded Uh, Ukrainian territory, which by any measure is an illegal thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. And so people are taking advantage of that and trying to suggest that this is um, only because um, uh, President Putin uh, is a dictator 
uh, and an expansionist uh, and has designs to conquer Europe. Now, of course, that narrative is uh, not entirely true, uh, as indeed the narratives that uh, Russia has put out um, to suggest that um, <clears throat> it was doing a special operation only uh, to... to um, uh, send a lesson to the government, which was a Nazi government and, and so a threat to Russia. So the point here is that uh, if we don't um, uh, have uh, a reflection which leads to a radical change of strategy, then we will get uh, a lot more of what we have had, perhaps and very likely in a worsening situation. What we've had uh, is um, the Russians uh, uh, fighting the Ukrainians and both sides causing horrendous casualties yeah. to the other. And the um, uh, allocation of weapons by the West to support the Ukrainians only makes uh, sense uh, in both realist terms and in ethical terms if that is matched by a realistic strategy of victory. The problem here, of course, is that President Putin has made it abundantly clear that if there is uh, uh, any realistic um, uh, 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 option or realistic situation where he yeah. is going to fail or he's going to lose, he's going to use the nuclear option. Yeah. Do you think all of this misinformation from both sides and the weapons that Ukraine have received are delaying the possibility for both parties to come to peace talks? First of all, I don't think this is what I would describe as misinformation. Of course, there is a lot of misinformation, disinformation, uh, you, you know, it's put out by both sides. There's yeah. a lot of propaganda, there's selective information. The, the danger here is that this is what uh, both sides believe. And what happens in warfare, and it's something that most people don't appreciate, and something I learned when I was involved in wars in the Middle East, and, and that is that the propaganda that both sides put out mm -hmm. um, starts off uh, as propaganda, as disinformation, as misinformation. But uh, the victims of those propaganda are the propagandists themselves. They start to believe their own propaganda narrative <laughs> uh, and the other side doesn't. Uh, and that's why I think we have a significant problem. Uh, there are many people on both sides um, uh, believing that each side is winning. Okay. And, and, and as long as that is the situation, there is no incentive for peace. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, um, yes, if you continue to arm um, uh, both sides, if they continue to arm themselves either th through proxy armament of the West or in Russia uh, buying armaments, uh, and, and uh, escalating its own production, which is far superior in, in numerical terms of artillery shells and other things uh, than the West's, uh, then that sustains the war. And what we get is just casualties, uh, as um, Europe has had over the last few hundred years, uh, where people, the soldiers, are seen just like ammunition, yeah. as expendable. Um, and uh, nowhere in the world have we had uh, so many people killed in conflicts 
than we have in Europe. And this is a, a big problem uh, because what we are seeing, um, what we're detecting in across the world, is that people are getting fed up. Um, the First and Second World War, I was talking to an African leader um, a few months ago, and, and he said, you know, you, uh, the West took uh, our people in the First World War uh, we were enslaved anyway, but they took them to fight in a war in Europe, and most of them never, ever came back. And in the Second World War, you again took our people. And now the problem is that you might not take our people, but you will have, we will have the fallout, literally and metaphorically, of that war. And indeed, many uh, countries are already experiencing horrendous yeah. problems, leading to the loss of life because of the sanctions which have affected food supply, which have affected energy, which have affected many other things. Uh, and where you have countries in the, uh, in the non-aligned world, in the third world, as it's sometimes called, or the global south, that are already very brittle in terms of their sustainability, this um, uh, little game that is being played in Europe between the West, uh, the European and American West, and the Russian West, don't forget that the Russians see themselves, uh, whether the, uh, the, the Europeans like it or not, as Western. This little um, a tiff that is going on is a very dangerous and painful thing where that the rest of the world, the majority of the world, is paying a huge price for, having already paid a massive price during yeah. the Cold War, where millions of people died, uh, and the very label of Cold War uh, says a great deal about the way the West sees the rest of the world. It was cold for mm. most of the world. I lived through it um, in England, and it was a wonderful time. But millions, uh, hundreds of millions of people died across the globe mm. in Asia, in Ra Africa, uh, in uh, South America, and many other places, because... The war, the Cold War, was a proxy war. Mm. So I think we need to see this conflict um, in that sense. But coming back to your, um, uh, and, and I, I paint this wider picture mm. to um, uh, really answer your question as generally and then as detailed as I can. Mm. This, this uh, feeding of conflict is not, um, you know, through uh, armament um, uh, supplies is not something uh, that sits alone. It is not just an issue between Europe the, uh, and America and Russia and Ukraine. It is something that is affecting and is likely to uh, um, catastrophically affect the rest of the world. And that is one other reason why it is imperative that they stop this war unless they can guarantee either side a, a winning strategy, which they have failed to do. Um, if they don't, can't do that, they need to stop it, and they need to come to some form of a political solution. Yeah, absolutely. That, that has to be uh, the end game. That has to be um, the direction of travel. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't see that at the moment, uh, Doctor. But um, how... Because of the escalations, now we've seen drone attacks deep inside Russian territory. That obviously is not um, is not going to go down well with the Russians. How close 
do you think we are to a potential miscalculation in this ever-escalating war? I think we're very close. Uh, we have been for a long time. The problem is that um, uh, I think what you're signaling with a miscalculation is that one of those red lines that your previous uh, speaker spoke about um, will be crossed. And if mm. they're crossed, uh, what we have is a clear statement uh, repeatedly put uh, by President Putin that um, he will escalate to full nuclear war. And there has been a debate um, uh, uh, by lots of people who really don't understand uh, the very specialist topic of nuclear warfare. Uh, for many people, nuclear bombs are just big bombs. They're not. And there's been talk about um, uh, about escalating using tactical nuclear weapons, which is a bit of a myth um, because there is no um, a law that says that uh, when you see a nuclear bomb going off, that is a tactical one, um, and and another one that goes off, which is slightly bigger, is not a tactical one. Mm. And and it will be foolhardy for either side, and I think both sides understand this, to uh, try yeah. to uh, dabble in yeah. nuclear warfare uh, in anything except an all-out exchange, and an all-out exchange. Uh, will be devastating for everybody. There will be no winners. Dr. Just one last question from me about everything you, you've just been explaining to our listeners. Who, who will broker the peace deal? Because if we imagine recently in, in our own history in the United Kingdom with the Northern Ireland and Ireland, it's still very raw. You know, it's only been 30 years effectively in a way. We had Canada that got them round the, the table and then President, I think it was Clinton, uh, Clinton then, then negotiated the kind of peace treaty. Do you think... Um, we need someone like Canada because obviously Putin is not listening to China and Ukraine are being, you know, they're, they're still at it. Who do you think, in everything you understand about this, who do you think will broker finally the peace deal? Well, I don't think you can have a, a peace deal um, uh, uh, brokered in this particular instance right. by a third party because the, uh, and here again, it's yeah. national egos at place. Uh, right. Whatever deal um, uh, takes place will involve, will have to involve, uh, certainly the United States and Russia. And I'm not sure that um, uh, why you don't believe that um, uh, Russia will not listen to China. Um, China uh, has always had a consistent policy of non-interference mm. in other states' affairs. Uh, it isn't happy, and it's made it clear that um, it does not see this war uh, as something that will produce an, uh, a, a good outcome. It has supported any effort for peace deals. Um, and I think the Russians have also um, indicated of, uh, fairly consistently that they are open to a deal. Um, what I think we have here is a problem where the Ukrainians, uh, and, and indeed we, we have a, a government that is in Ukraine that is highly uh, pro-American and reliant on American support. And there's this very strong mutual relationship uh, which um, does not want a, a peace deal without addressing uh, the, you know, and 
addressing the underlying problems. And if you don't uh, address the underlying problems of NATO encroachment, Mm -hmm. Ukrainian membership of NATO, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and many other things that... Mm -hmm. uh, Crimea, yeah. uh, Well, Crimea, I think, can be, um, uh, if you like, set aside. Um, you, 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 with um, uh, deals of this nature, peace deals, uh, you, you mentioned um, uh, the, mm. the, the Northern Ireland peace process. Very often when they're complex, it is difficult to get a comprehensive deal. So what they you, people do is they do um, uh, small steps, confidence-building measures that have a deal, maybe a ceasefire, uh, and, uh, and another phase. If that's successful, they move on to something else. And Crimea is something that can be um, put to one side. The the sort of thing I think we do need to address is this uh, threat of NATO encroachment. Mm -hmm. The big problem is that um, uh, uh, both sides, but particularly the West, is becoming increasingly entrenched. And now public opinion has been stoked up and there is a a big desire to make Ukraine a a member of NATO. Mm. Well, you know, if you're going to do that, basically you're saying you're going to defeat Russia because Russia went to war. (laughs) Because of that, yes. Absolutely. What we have have to have is a radical rethink. And I didn't think I would ever say this, but um, (laughs) it seems to me the greatest hope for peace um, will uh, we'll, um, uh, depend on the new the presidential elections next year, uh, because President Trump has made it clear that he would um, go for a peace deal, um, and he's one of the few people, even in the Republican. I thought party. I'd never hear that, uh, doctors, <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> Trump and peace in the in the in the same sentence. But uh, no, thank you very much, uh, Professor. Uh, Afzal Ashraf, this was uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, excellent contribution there. Thank you so very much. Um, uh, we've enjoyed talking to you, and I'm sure yeah, our listeners enjoyed uh, talking to you as well. This is certainly the you know the other side of things that uh, generally we don't tend to hear on uh, on mainstream media, anyways. So I must thank you. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Peace be with you. Walaikum assalam, peace be with you. So that was uh, Dr. Afzal Ashraf, who is an expert on global security, conflict and counterterrorism, also teaches international relations, politics and history at the University of Loughborough. Right. Um, let me now go to our last guest for this segment, who is uh, an imam within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Imam Samar Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for uh, for staying on the line, um, uh, Imam Samar. Um, we are obviously uh, talking about, um, you know, the this conflict in Ukraine, the escalations, there's lots of geopolitics, naked self-interest, egos, jingoism involved, you know, um, all of those bad words that you can that you can imagine. Uh I was hoping to to understand from you what Islamic concept of uh, of peace and justice how and how important are these two intertwined uh, intertwined I should say peace and justice within Islamic politics. Hmm. Um, b- before speaking about what uh, Islam teaches us uh, in this regard, in regards to justice and peace. First, we need to understand, and I'm sure uh, I've only just been listening in for the last couple of minutes, but I'm sure you've probably tackled that throughout the course of the show. 
But the root cause of the un- unrest that we see in the world today is actually due to the, a lack of justice found at mm. every level of society. And only by recognizing our creator can we as mankind hope to establish true justice and usher in an era of individual, communal, and also global peace. Um, And another thing also that I want to mention uh, uh, before talking about peace and justice itself is that the main reason for the state of disorder that we see in the world today are the acquisition of personal gains in the name of God, the true fear of God disappearing from people's hearts, or even the denial of existence of God Almighty whilst giving preference to worldly laws and ideologies. And I'll come back to this at the end as well. Um, despite being the creation of Allah the Almighty, we as man, we consider uh, Allah the Almighty's customs and system of justice and equity inferior to his man-made customs and systems of, uh, of justice. And like I said, I will be um, summarizing uh, with that point as well. Um, so just put, put, put a pin in that for, for a moment there. Sure. But the, 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 the most important thing that Islam teaches us in regards to justice is, is such a beautiful teaching. And I'm sure many of uh, your regular listeners uh, on Voice of Islam radio station will be well aware of this as well. And this is that, Very simple verse of the Holy Quran in which he states that, Verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred. And what we need to understand over here is that when we look at justice, then whatever faith it might be, whatever religion it might be, whatever world government or any other kind of organization it may be, they will always take you to the point uh, of, of being just, right? That is the, that's the highest level in their, in their view and in their eyes. And that is that if someone does good to you, then, then do something similar to them, right? But Allah the Almighty, He has told us and He has taught us uh, in the Holy Quran and through the practice of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that that's not the last step, that's not the pinnacle, that's actually the first step. That's the very first thing that you need to do. Then you need to go on to do good to others, better than what they've done to you. And then you take it one step further and you take it to, to, to treating them as you would treat your kindred, just as a mother with a child. That is the kind of relationship that we should be having with, with people. And remember, this, when this verse was revealed, this was at a time when the, the Muslims were being persecuted. They were being, uh, it, uh, such barbaric actions were being uh, brought uh, against them. And this is the uh, injunction that uh, God Almighty gave to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that this is how you should retaliate. Yeah. That in the law, the doing of good to others, and then one step further, that the giving like kindred. And you can only imagine, Dalia, how difficult this might be. But like I said, this is the injunction that the Quran has taught us. And it's so important for us to actually keep this in our minds at all times that whenever someone does something good to us, we don't just retaliate by giving them a, a similar uh, a, a gift which is similar. It also states in the Holy Quran that whenever someone gives you something, then you return it with something which is 
either, either of the uh, same um, uh, quality or same value or, or something which is even greater. Yeah. And and that's why we have this uh, Asalaamu Alaikum as well. You know, this, this yeah. greeting that we give one another. Um, there's three three versions of this. And if one gives you, uh, greets you in one way, then you greet him back in the same way. But then you take it one step further. You say that not just peace, but even more uh, of God's security be upon you as well. Um, I know you are coming towards the end of the show as well, so I am mindful of the time. Um, one thing that I do want to mention before I end is from um, His Holiness, um, in which uh, uh, the, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, Ahmed. And this is a lecture that he gave in York University in Toronto in Canada, um, titled Justice in a Just World. And towards the end, right before... Um, praying um, and, and leading everyone in prayer as well. He stated, and I like to quote this as well, that whether Muslim or non-Muslim, we should pursue the universal standards of justice outlined in the Holy Quran. As the Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, so beautifully stated, we must love for others what we love for ourselves. We must pursue the rights of others with the same zeal and determination that we pursue our own rights. We should broaden our horizons and look at what is right for the world rather than what is only right for us. These are the means for peace in our age. And, and Daniel, I, I think you'll agree, this, this passage uh, taken from the speech of His Holiness, mm. this beautifully summarizes Absolutely. what we are lacking in the world today. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we see world governments just pursuing their own vested interests, mm see different organizations doing the same thing as well. We will never see peace, and I can guarantee you, this, these are the words of His Holiness as well, we, we, will, we will never see peace mm. until we like for others what we like for ourselves. Yeah. Unless we, that same zeal, that same determination that we have to, to acquire whatever we need, right? When we don't do that for our neighbors and for, our, uh, for, for other people, then we will never see true peace. And, and with that, uh, I, I'd like to end my, my short uh, uh, the, the discussion here, and, and I think that uh, this passage of His Holiness is basically the summary of uh, of, uh, of not just my discussion here, but pretty much the whole show, because yeah. this is, in essence, what we are all in need of today. Yeah. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Imam Samar. Um, it was absolutely a great uh, summary to our discussion that we had, because many of the kind of discussions we were having with our guests it was like there is no solution to this problem. And I think you have eloquently explained the way and the pathway in which His Holiness, Hazrat Masood Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, and all of the other um, wonderful people we have in, in our community have kind of explained this sub subject. Well, honestly, thank you very much uh, for your time today. And hopefully we'll have you in the studio next time. You know, as a regular Voice of Islam produce, uh, radio presenter, you we miss you on the drive time show. Come back. <laughs> really? I'll, give, give me an invite. I'll come. <laughs> wow, you couldn't come in the studio today. But anyway, anyway, thank you very much, Imam Samir. Honestly, it, we, we really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, so, Danielle, it just comes to the end of the show, really. I mean, the yeah. two subjects that we've had, which have been absolutely fantastic, mm. and especially in the first hour where we had that discussion about the fast fashion and, and kind of like the, the results to our poll were, were very clear in that um, I think most people kind of said they'll 
buy something new every month. Uh, but hopefully after our discussion, we've managed to get people to, you know, review how often they do. And also the, the, the summing up of, of what Imam Summer said is about the lack of justice. If we had true justice in this world, I think many people wouldn't go into conflict as do. Whatever like, just like to say thank you to our uh, producers, Nadia Shams and Padavir Shoma, and obviously for yourself for producing this last show. And so it is uh, coming up to six o'clock and it is the top of the hour and here is the six o'clock news. Thank you.